Hello everyone and welcome to Indian Genes. Before we start or move forward in this episode, I want to first of all thank each and every one of you for the absolutely amazing feedback that we've been receiving and I think it's been overwhelming. We didn't expect this kind of response because the idea was that this particular conversation or this particular process that we've started now was going to take a little bit of time to kick into the media and through everybody who listens to podcasts. But it's been very encouraging to know that uh, you guys are liking it and keep your letters and emails coming in. Same with the comments. So thank you for that. As we move forward with a podcast for today, my guest is a British science communicator, author and co-host of the Naked Science podcast, a BBC radio program and has also featured on the BBC Radio 5 Live Science Show. She has written numerous articles and columns for Science, The Guardian, The New Scientist and the BBC as well. She was educated at the University of Cambridge where she was awarded her PhD in 2002 for research into epigenetic modification. I now present to you my very interesting conversation with Dr. Kat Ani. Hello, Kat, and welcome to Indian Genes. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Great. Kat, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of our listeners who are waiting to listen to all that you're going to be telling us about genetics and the field of genetics, especially what is currently happening, a little bit of uh, cutting-edge technology that's coming up as well. And having uh, read all your books, your articles, listened to you on YouTube, I think our viewers are in for a great time. Oh, I'm really excited to see what you're going to ask me. So, uh, where do you want to start? Great. Kat, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what got you interested in, in you doing what you're doing? So, I mean, if we go all the way back, I'm always someone that's been a very nerdy child. I've always been interested in science and nature and doing experiments. When I was quite young, my parents bought me a chemistry set and I remember just doing all these experiments, growing crystals trying all this stuff. Uh, I kept snails in my bedroom because I was just really interested in <laughs> snails. Uh, I used to absolutely love science at school. And so I thought, right, going to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to uh, be able to get into Cambridge University to do my undergraduate degree and then a PhD as well because that's how you become a scientist, right? You right. go to university, you do your degree in science, you do a PhD. And I did this... Uh, kind of, a, it's more like a pick and mix degree, it's called natural sciences, so I covered things like molecular biology, cell biology, developmental biology, pharmacology, physiology, sort of all the ologies. And uh, then I did my PhD in developmental genetics, because what I realised that really fascinated me, and still fascinates me today, is this question of, at the very beginning of life, when you have an egg and a sperm coming together, mm -hmm. that's one set of DNA, half from mum, half from dad. And that makes a baby, mm -hmm. or a baby mouse, or a baby fruit fly, or a, a baby fish, or wh whatever it is. But like, wow, how do you go from one cell with one set of genetic instructions to unfold all this incredible complexity of life? I was like, how does that work? 
And it turns out it's really, really complicated. So after a while, I stopped being a scientist because it was very hard. None of my experiments worked and I became very depressed. So I decided to become a science writer instead because mm. uh, I was quite good at that and it was easier than working in the lab. Yeah. And then from there, I ended up uh, getting a job working with Cancer Research UK. So that's the, uh, one of the world's biggest cancer charities, working in communications, telling their stories, talking about their research. And then three and a half years ago, I brought out my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, which is all about understanding how our genes work. And from then, I've been a freelance writer, broadcaster. I create the Genetics Unzipped podcast for mm -hmm. the Genetics Society and also run my own company, providing content consultancy about how to communicate stories for startups, for organizations, anyone working in the, the scientific, the life sciences industry. So that's where I am today from where I started. Oh, that's brilliant. And I have to say that the Herding Hemingway's Cat book that you did write, I think you've put in a lot of effort into that because just by the fact of you being able to connect with so many of the uh, eminent scientists and people in research at this moment, I think that must have been a great experience for you speaking to them. Oh, it was just amazing. Uh, and also very surprising that if you email Nobel Prize winners and say, I'm writing a book about how genes work. They'll say, yeah, 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 come and talk to me if you're passing through. So I went all over the place. I, I went around the UK to, to the US, to France, uh, called people in Australia. I didn't get to go to Australia. Right. But yeah, you talk to all these amazing people and say, I'm trying to find out how do genes work? And pretty much all of them said, well, uh, when you find out, let me know. You're right. Because <laughs> you know, it turns out it's really complicated. So that book was... It was almost my kind of quest to see what we do know and what we don't know. Uh, I learned a lot. I thought I knew how genes worked. I thought I kind of knew it all. And just writing that book, unfolding it, really made me realize how much we still just don't understand about that black box between the code in our DNA and how you make a baby and how we work. So that, that was a very interesting journey. Absolutely. And if we had to uh, ask you uh, for, to, to give us a little bit of a you know, peek into this on how it all started, or what is the best way for us to think about, uh, you know, when we talk about genes and genetics, if we had to go back a little bit into our past, when did, um, I mean, I'm sure people were always interested in this, but when did this take off as, as a real science where people started now? Uh, getting facts together and also being able to put out papers? So, obviously, we're all interested in why we are like how we are and where did that come from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that my family is certainly fascinated by, oh, did you get that from your gran? Did you get that from your father? You're like your sister, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely think that that has gone back through all of civilization. We're just fascinated about the connection between ourselves and our children and our ancestors. So there's a human interest in why we are what we're like. Right. And then from a very practical point of view, you can go back to the earliest recorded history in agriculture where, for example, farmers have tried to breed animals or crops that have certain characteristics. So, you know, people knew that if you have certain characteristics and you breed things together, you get certain characteristics out. But I guess I think where it really starts to become a science, is like so many things, is, is really probably in the 19th century. 
So that's when you have uh, a lot of, particularly in Germany, a lot of people really looking at cells down microscopes, understanding the nature of this, this material, understanding the nature of this mysterious dark material mm. inside cells that uh, we now know as DNA, but they didn't know at the time. And so you have this kind of molecular side, looking at cells, how does that work? And then you have the genetic side, looking at breeding, looking at offspring, thinking about how traits are passed down. So for quite a while in the, in the 19th century, those two things were running on separate tracks. So you have all these German microscopists, people looking at cells, very interesting. And then you have people like Gregor Mendel. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a name that might be familiar to some people. Oh, yes. yes. Because he's really the, the grandfather, great-grandfather, hmm. not sure where we are now, yep, of yep. modern genetics. 19th century, right? Exactly. So Mendel was around in the middle of the 19th century. And he was really interested in plants. And what happens when you breed plants together? Now, Mendel was a monk. He was uh, in a, an abbey in what's now the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. So in Brno in, in the Czech Republic. And apparently, originally, he was very interested in breeding mice uh, and seeing what happened when you bred different mice together. But apparently, that was, that was not thought to be very appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, not very, you know, it's, yep. a, it's a bit too exciting. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he stuck, he stuck <laughs> with plants. Right. And he really wanted to know what happens when you breed plants with different characteristics together. And so he set about with a paintbrush, carefully pollinating pea plants with different flower colours or types of peas to see what happened. Mm -hmm. And he wrote down everything that he found, all the, the numbers of offspring with different characteristics. And he did a bit of math and he worked out that there are some ratios and some rules as to how these characteristics are passed on. And he uh, announced his results, published a paper with his results in 1865 to his local scientific society mm -hmm. in, in Brno. And this would have been in German. And uh, kind of that was it. So uh, things didn't really do anything from there. In the UK and, uh, and other parts of the world, you have a lot of people still doing animal experiments, breeding experiments. Charles Darwin himself doing lots of experiments to try and understand how traits and characteristics pass down. Right. But no one really knew about Mendel's work. And it wasn't until round about the turn of the 20th century that there were um, some Dutch biologists, people like Hugo de Vries, and then here in the UK, William Bateson, right. started to look at all the evidence that was gathering together about what can we say about how traits are inherited. And they discovered Mendel's paper. And they were like, oh, wow, there are rules. Mm -hmm. And then people started to say, well, what do we know about what this stuff actually looks like? Down a microscope, we can see that when, uh, when two cells come together, you get some, some of this dark stuff from mum, some of this dark stuff from dad. Maybe that's to do with how these traits are inherited. And from there, you start to get the bringing together of the molecular side, the actual cells, the, the DNA, although, again, like people didn't really figure out what DNA was for another few decades. Right. And the inheritance, how these traits and characteristics are passed on. And so I think then at that point in the, the very early 20th century, that's really where the, the field of genetics, it gets its name from William Bateson, and that's where it really gets started. 
Right. And I think this was also the time where the double helix became quite uh, popular within pop culture and you see it everywhere today. But uh, that must have been quite interesting or the time would have been very interesting when they actually figured out the, the actually, they actually were able to figure out the, the genome, right? Yeah. So the history of actually understanding that DNA is the hereditary material and then What's it made of? What does it look like? How do we actually read that information? Right. You know, that is decades and decades of work through the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a really wonderful book by a science writer called Matthew Cobb where he looks at all that story of how did people piece together that DNA is actually the information of heredity. Right. And so then probably the most famous moment, the famous tipping point comes in 1953 with James Watson and Francis Crick who discover the structure of DNA. Absolutely. Some people, I think, get a bit confused and they say, oh, that's when they discovered DNA. It's like, no, no, we knew that there was DNA. Um, What wasn't sure was the structure of it. And even at that time, people weren't 100% convinced that DNA was the information of life, was the genetic code. They thought maybe it was some proteins or, or maybe it was something else. But Watson and Crick discovered that you have this this double helix, a twisted ladder that uh, encodes information in just four letters or chemical bases, this A, C, T and G, adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine, it's four chemicals, but we can think of them as Mm -hmm. letters. And they discovered that this ladder structure, suddenly you start to understand how DNA can be copied, how it can be read, and you start to understand the mechanism for how it can be passed on. And I think that was, a, that was a real tipping point. So you start to understand how DNA is copied, how it can be separated into new cells, how it can perpetuate in all living things. So that was a very, very important moment. And also I do want to say that there's also a lot of uh, misinformation around there mm-hmm. because there was a very important person called Rosalind Franklin and her boss, Morris Wilkins, at King's College London, and also Rosalind's PhD student, Ray Gosling, Mm -hmm. uh, and some other people around the time who did a lot of the work to actually look at that structure. They were using a technique called X-ray crystallography to look at that structure and say, ooh, what what might DNA be like? And they were like, yeah, we think it's probably a double helix. But then Watson and Crick actually published a paper with a very famous picture in it and their model of it. And so... They get the glory, uh, and together with Morris Wilkins, got a Nobel Prize for it. And unfortunately, Rosalind Franklin had died of cancer by that point. Right. So I, I think she is someone who's very much left out of that story a lot of the time, although it's becoming more well-known. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And if we had to go down to the mechanics of all of this, to start with, the DNA is a molecule, and the DNA is within the uh, nucleus of a cell. Would that be accurate? Yes. Okay. yes. For, uh, <laughs> for complex cells, what we call eukaryotic cells. Mm-hmm. So these are cells like our cells, plant cells, yeast, fungi, anything more complicated than a simple bacterium has a nucleus that has DNA inside it. And DNA is a molecule. It's packaged up, it's wrapped up around lots of proteins, but at its heart, it is basically a, a string of chemicals. Uh, as I said, these four letters or bases, A, C, T, and G, each one's a slightly different shape. They pair up in characteristic ways. Mm-hmm. A pairs with T, C pairs with G, 
And it's that order of those letters, A-C-T-G-C-T-T-A, mm-hmm. that spells out the recipe of a particular gene. Right. Now, also one thing that's important to know is that you say, oh, well, we, we have a, a human genome. That's all the DNA that's in one of your cells, uh, six billion of these letters. Most of that is not genes. Mm-hmm. So less than 2% of your whole human genome is actually encoding recipes for genes. Mm-hmm. So the rest does all sorts of things. Uh, some of it is switches that help to turn genes on and off. Some of it is structural. It helps DNA to divide and separate when a cell divides. And some of it is just junk mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what all the rest of the stuff in the genome that is not just genes, actually is. So uh, that, that's partly what Hemingway's Cats was about, was if most of it isn't genes, then w- what's all the rest doing, and how are these genes switched on and off? Right. Because you have the same genes in every single cell, in one of your liver cells, or one of your brain cells, or one of your skin cells. Mm-hmm. You have the same set of genes. You have the same genome. But those genes are used in different ways to give you bowel cells and brain cells and liver cells and skin cells, each doing their own job. Mm-hmm. So that really is the, the complexity and, and for what, for me, fascinates me about genetics and biology is if you all have the same genes, you know, how does that work? How do you get different cells? I think is a, a fascinating question. Right. And when you say what we inherit from our parents, so when we talk about the chromosomes, so this is what we also inherit within the chromosomes, the genes? Yes, so uh, you inherit half your DNA from mum and half your DNA from dad. Mm -hmm. So just to get a bit more into the detail of it, Mm -hmm. every single human cell has 46 strings of DNA. Mm -hmm. These are called chromosomes. And they are 23 pairs. So you have uh, chromosome 1, a pair of those chromosomes. So you have two chromosome 1s. You have two chromosome 2s, you have two chromosome 3s, and so on and so on, all the way up to 22. Right. And then you have X and Y chromosomes, and these are the sex chromosomes that determine genetic sex. Mm-hmm. So if you have two X chromosomes, XX, you're at least genetically a female. If you have XY, you are genetically a male. Mm-hmm. And so when... Uh, when an egg and a sperm come together at the very the beginning of life, mm-hmm. an egg contains one chromosome one, one chromosome two, one chromosome three, and so on and so on and so on, and one X chromosome, because obviously your mum will be XX because R- she makes eggs. Right. And, uh, and then the sperm will have one chromosome one, one chromosome two, one chromosome three, and so on, and could have an X or a Y chromosome. So that combination of... You get a random assortment of chromosome 1, 2, 3, whatever, from mum and dad, and you could be XX or XY. And when the egg and sperm come together, whoosh, right. that is your new genome that then builds you. Right. Very interesting. It's amazing. I think it's literally the most incredible thing absolutely. in the world. Uh, it, it absolutely fascinates me. You have these two sets of information. They come together. They have to be unpacked, repacked, sorted out, genes switched on, genes switched off, cells dividing like crazy, 
specializing, making decisions, saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, you do this, you do that, we're building a brain, you're building legs. It's absolutely incredible. I think it's the most incredible thing. It's Part of it is what I did my PhD on, with mm-hmm. that very, very early moments of egg and sperm coming together, unpacking, repacking. But the whole thing just just blows me away. Uh, I, endlessly fascinating. Absolutely. And the, the, the whole process itself, like you just mentioned, in the information that is coded within the genes, and this particular uh, gene is now within the nucleus. So for this to actually then get into forming some kind of an amino acid or getting the amino acids together, to build some kind of protein, this DNA from within the nucleus of the cell has to travel out for something else like a, that's called a ribosome to encode it. So how, how does this movement happen for it to go out from the cell, from the, okay. from the nucleus? So this is getting into the area of Basically, we call this gene expression, but it's basically gene activity. So what happens when a gene is switched on? So I just want to step back a tiny bit and think about what a gene actually is. Mm -hmm. So humans, we have about 20,000 genes, and they're scattered throughout our genome. And if you can imagine, you know, a a long piece of string that's the whole chromosome, a gene just might be a a very short segment of that string. Mm -hmm. Now, a gene is usually is a recipe that encodes something called a protein. And proteins are like the stuff that your cells are made of. So your skin, your skin cells are full of a protein called keratin. There's all the other proteins that keep your cells running, making energy, reproducing, all that kind of stuff. Proteins are like the, the stuff that our cells are built of. Right. And DNA and the genes within DNA are the recipes that encode those proteins. Now, if you imagine that your DNA is like a recipe book, to actually read one of those genes to make the protein, um, you don't make proteins inside the nucleus. Right. So that, that's very risky. You want to really protect your DNA. It's the only copy that that cell has mm-hmm. of all your genes. So you want to be very careful to protect your actual DNA inside the nucleus. So what happens when a gene is active is that that particular gene, it's, uh, it's kind of almost like a photocopy. It's, it's copied into a molecule called RNA. Now, that's very similar to DNA, mm-hmm. um, but it's only got one strand. And that RNA is a short strand that can then go out of the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So the DNA itself never goes out of the nucleus. Okay. Your genes don't go out of the nucleus. Mm-hmm. It's this copy a sort of disposable copy of, of that recipe goes out of the nucleus and then it goes to the ribosome, which is sort of the, the molecular chef, if you like, that's going mm-hmm. to read that recipe and make the protein. So that's how it works. The DNA is, is the, the master recipe book. Right. The recipes are copied into RNA. We call that transcription. Mm-hmm. And then that transcript goes out of the nucleus to the ribosome, and there it's translated into a protein. And you do this for the right set of genes. In a liver cell, it's going to turn on the liver genes, make liver proteins. In a skin cell, turn on the skin genes, make skin proteins. Brain cells, turn on their brain genes. And that's basically how you you build that cell with that characteristic. 
Right. And when you say once the DNA is active, do you, are you referring to the genetic switch that you were talking about earlier where, where it switches on and then there is activity? Yes. So this is a, a really interesting thing because, as I said earlier, all your cells have the same genes. They all have that same master set of recipes. Exactly. But your cells are different. And this is, yeah, this is really wow when you get your head around it. Mm -hmm. So the key thing is, is that you have to be able to switch genes on or off at the right time and in the right place to, to do the right job, to make the structures of an embryo or to make sure that your liver cells are functioning in your liver and your skin cells are functioning in your skin or wherever. Right. So next to your genes, you have little stretches of DNA that act as control switches. Okay. So the, the switches that turn genes on are called enhancers, and the switches that turn genes off are called repressors. Mm -hmm. And so uh, different cells will kind of activate enhancers or repressors. They will switch genes on or off to make sure that they are always activating the right set of genes to do the job that they need to do. Mm -hmm. And some of these switches can be absolutely miles away from the gene itself, and there can be lots and lots and lots of switches for just one gene. So, for example, you have about 20,000 genes in the human genome. Mm -hmm. We have over 100,000 switches that turn these genes on and off. So wow. it's, it's incredible. Wow. And actually, my, my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, the Hemingway's Cats of the title, mm -hmm. is actually a story about one of these switches because uh, I was sitting in a, a lecture at, at the Royal Society in London and the, the man is uh, a guy called uh, Bob Hill from Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. He was talking about this switch that turns on a gene called Sonic Hedgehog. Right, <laughs> Sonic Hedgehog. Gene. And that, that uh, he and named that after, I think he named that after his son's favourite uh, cartoon, yeah, am I right? Yeah, it's named after the cartoon character yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but this little switch, it turns on Sonic Hedgehog in the developing limbs of, of a mouse, of a cat, of a human. And if there is a problem with that switch, you end up with uh, cats with six toes. Hmm. So you get an extra toe. And Ernest Hemingway loved these cats. They're called thumb cats or, or mitten cats. Right. And uh, so Ernest Hemingway had all these cats. And finally, you know, Bob Hill was able to discover this particular genetic switch. It's miles away from the gene. And just one little change in it gives you a cat with thumbs. So that got me really thinking about the Hemingway cats and the idea of just herding all these ideas about genetics and, and herding all these cats. Right. And really, the, that story starts from this genetic switch. It's not about the genes necessarily. It's about the switches. It's about what you do with them. Right, right. And I, you, you earlier mentioned that uh, I think you said we've got about 20,000 genes. Is that right, Gap? Roughly. <laughs> so, so considering as, as, as complicated as we are, does that mean that you're looking at other species or animals or fish or bird? Uh, where would we be placed in that spectrum? Are we on the higher side or are we just, you know, I, what, is, what is the rest of it like? Well, I, I am afraid to break it to you Please that do. we are not, not that special in terms of the number of genes that we have. Oh, are so, we? Uh, I'm afraid humans uh, humans have about 20,000 genes, mm -hmm. and fruit flies, nematode worms, they have about the same. Um, bacteria have fewer, sort of uh, 4,000 or so. 
the real people, well, not people, yeah. the real organisms with all the genes are actually plants. So okay. wheat has 100,000 genes. Apples have tens of thousands of genes. Uh, yeah, all sorts of organisms have different numbers of genes. And so the number of genes you have mm -hmm. is, uh, it's not necessarily a reflection of, you know, wonderful sophistication like we think humans are. Right. Uh, it's just a reflection of how many genes you have. So um, the challenge really with, and I, I think people didn't really want to believe that humans only had about 20,000 genes. Like the fruit the, fly. The number is, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we must be more complicated than a fruit fly, right? Exactly. So uh, originally, I remember when I was doing my PhD, uh, sort of the very late 90s, we thought that there were there must be about 100,000 genes in the human genome right. because we make about 100,000 different proteins. Right. Uh, but actually, when they started to be able to read the whole human genome, so the, the, the human genome project started, people started reading all the DNA in the human genome and realized that there were you know, fewer than 25,000 genes. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, where are the genes? Right. And then you start to realize, no, it's, it's not really about how many genes you have. It's what you do with them. It's how you turn them off. They get uh, the, the RNA messages. They get cut up and spliced and stuck together in different ways. You can make alternative transcripts, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. We use our 20,000 genes in incredibly complex ways yes. to, generate, uh, to generate all the kinds of different cells and tissues of our, of our bodies. And uh, again, that's, it just blows me away. I think it's absolutely incredible. Right. And I think that, that another thing that I find really interesting is when you talk about the ATG and, and, and the information that is coded. I just want to get back to that. Where does this information come from? So the process of uh, genetically uh, moving out of the nucleus and then the ribosome actually, let's say, encoding what is within the code. Where does this code come from in nature? Wow, that, that, that goes deep. So we know that all life on Earth has the same DNA. All life on Earth that we know of uses these same four DNA bases, these same four letters, mm -hmm. A, C, T, and G, mm -hmm. adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. So that tells us that this system of DNA uh, is very, 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 very ancient. Right. And so uh, you can get into the, the how this code actually works. It's, it's quite complicated. So I would really, really recommend reading Matthew Cobb's book, Life's Greatest Secret, which mm -hmm. explains a lot about how people discovered the code and how the code actually works. But at its most basic level, it's what we call a triplet code. So three letters, ACG, ATG, TTG, TTT, is basically uh, encodes one amino acid, which is a building block of a protein. Mm -hmm. So as a ribosome is reading this, this transcript, it's like, okay, ATG, that means that I put this amino acid here at the start, methionine, that's the start of our protein. Then it reads the next three letters, TTC. Then it gets that corresponding amino acid, glues it onto the first one. Then it reads the next three letters, CCG, gets the corresponding amino acid, 
glues it onto that one. Mm -hmm. And so by reading these little three-letter combinations, getting the appropriate amino acid, sticking it onto the one that came before, right. that's how the ribosome interprets that code and builds those proteins. Right. And that code is remarkably conserved. And when you get back into sort of bacteria and things like that, there are some sort of wobbles around the edges. But pretty much, you know, all of complex life runs on the same code, the okay. same three letters encoding this amino acid or that amino acid. Mm -hmm. And that tells us that this goes all the way back, you know, four billion years, to the very origins of life on Earth. Uh, again, so it's a very, very deep and ancient system. Right. Very interesting. And like you said, uh, because of the complexities that we have as, as humans with just 20,000 genes, uh, compared to maybe, uh, maybe uh, fruits or, or, or plants, the environment, uh, maybe the fact of, you know, 50% of uh, what happens genetically to us as we move on is also environment. So does that mean, or is that the reason maybe we just interact more or we are more receptive to the environment or would that be uh, one of those factors that actually make this, uh, this genetic code more, let's say, uh, fruitful in our case? I don't think that we can say that humans are particularly more or less sensitive to their environment than any other organism. Mm -hmm. um, so, so this is getting into an area that we call epigenetics. Right. And uh, and this is now very very cool. Lots of people talk about epigenetics. Yeah, it's, epigenetics it's a big. Is, um, it, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of people talking and writing about it. So we'd like to hear from you. Exactly. I mean, so I, I did my PhD in epigenetics before it was cool, you know, right. I did like the, the, okay. the early work. Okay. Uh, but this is really, and this comes back again to this question of if you only have this many genes and you have all the same genes in all your cells, how are your cells different? Mm -hmm. uh, and then how do your cells manage to respond to changes in the world around them? Mm -hmm. You know, for example, if you suddenly get very hot, you need to be able to switch on genes that protect yourselves from that heat right. or from extra acid or from, you know, damage or something like that. You need to be able to activate, switch on genes or switch them off mm -hmm. when they're not needed. And this comes down to what we call epigenetics. So this is how the genome interacts with the environment, how the nature interacts with the nurture. Mm -hmm. And all cells and all organisms do this. Humans are not special in any way because all cells have a way of sensing changes in the environment around them, whether right. that's just changes in their immediate cellular environment or changes in the environment around the whole organism. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of this comes down to how that DNA is packaged up inside the nucleus. Right. So DNA is wrapped around little proteins, it's wrapped around kind of little balls, like if you imagine sort of beads on a string or a necklace. DNA is wrapped up and it, it packages it, keeps it safe. And when genes are active, that packaging kind of unwraps, it loosens up, it opens up, so you can get the gene reading machinery in there. Mm -hmm. And when genes are not needed, when they are meant to be silent or switched off, it's really tightly, tightly packed up. And it's packed away in parts of the nucleus where there's, there's not a lot of activity. If you imagine it's a bit like putting uh, something that you don't use very often, you might put it in the basement or, uh, you know, up mm -hmm. in, the, in the loft. Yeah. Stuff that you don't need very often, you pack it away. 
stuff that you really need and use all the time. You open it up, you have it in front of you, you can use it. So this process of, of packing, unpacking, repacking, that process can respond to the environment. Mm -hmm. So a change could happen around a cell and then there is an epigenetic change and this packing unwinds, opens, then the gene can be active. There's another change, those packing changes, it's, it's screwed up, it's put away and it's shut down again. Mm -hmm. So that interaction between the genetic switches that turn genes on and off, the three-dimensional organization of DNA inside the nucleus, this tight packing or loose packing, all of this uh, helps to cells to interact with their environment on that microscopic or on that much bigger level. Right. And is this the same as the, the, the discussion that we talk about when it comes to genotype or phenotype is what you were just describing? Yeah. So this is starting to get into that, that black box. Right. Uh, it, 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 all of it kind of adds up and comes together. So the biggest question in biology is, how do we go from just this, this genome sequence mm -hmm. to an organism? Absolutely. So there's some of it that is in the code, uh, and then there's some of it is in how that code is used, which switches turn on when, what are they responding to, how much is just self-organization, how much is responding to environmental cues, how much can we change that, how much of that information is passed on to the next generation, mm -hmm. how does that all work? And now I'm going to really blow your mind right. because okay. <laughs> I've talked a little bit about, we've talked about nature, mm -hmm. so the actual, like the DNA code. Right. Then there's the nurture, how that code is used, how it responds to the environment. Right. And then there's something that I like to call the wobble, mm -hmm. right? So we've got nature, nurture, and the wobble. Okay. And what the wobble is, is just the uh, it, it, random is not quite right, but it's what scientists call stochastic variation in gene activity. Mm -hmm. And the, the best story that I have for illustrating this is a, a story that I tell in the book, and it's from a researcher called Ben Lehner, who works in Barcelona. Right. And he studies tiny, tiny nematode worms. And these worms are basically, they're, they're super, super identical. They're all absolutely genetically identical. They're all twins, if you like, super clones. Mm -hmm. They are all in exactly the same environment. So they, they all live in a tiny plastic dish. They've got exactly the same food, exactly the same temperature, humidity. These worms are identical. Mm -hmm. And what Ben did was that he uh, used genetic engineering to inactivate, to, to knock out, switch off one particular gene. Now that should have killed the worms mm -hmm. that should have been really bad and then he looked at the worms and half of them were dead and half of them were still alive oh, wow. and he was like right I'm, I'm gonna get you worms mm -hmm. and he knocked out two genes so another gene and like that should really 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 have killed these worms right and he looks at the worms and 90% of them are dead 10% of them are still alive mm -hmm. and why is that these worms should be dead and it is because there are um, kind of random fluctuations in the activity levels of some of the rest of the genes that were just managing to compensate biology is incredibly robust 
So your genes are not just like switched on 100% on or switched off 100% off. Mm-hmm. In order to switch on a gene, you have to assemble this incredibly complex molecular machinery. You have to make this RNA transcript. It then has to get out of the nucleus and be translated. There's a lot of things that can vary and, uh, and, and happen and, and affect the actual level of activity of that gene. Whoa. And so what Ben's experiments tell us is that this random fluctuation, this wobble, actually does affect how something comes out, the phenotype. Mm-hmm. So we have to add together nature, the DNA code that we can read. Mm-hmm. We have to add in nurture, the impact of the environment, which is a lot harder mm-hmm. to understand and assess. And then we have to factor in this kind Wob- of random wobble as well. Right. And really start to understand how do all those things add together to make a cell like it is and to make an organism like it is. And, you know, spoilers. It's really complicated. Oh, no. uh, so that, that's really where we are now at the frontier of right. genetics and biology, is trying to bring all of that together to understand on a very deep level how this works. Excellent. And would, would the wobble be, uh, if you're looking and trying to connect it to, to humans, would it be one of the reasons why certain people are more resilient or stronger, whether it's emotionally or whether it's physically, because... Like you said, if 50% of, of, on the first experiment, 50% of the, those, those worms survived, uh, does that also mean within humans there is a possibility that there is just 10% of the people because of this wobble that just happen to be? Uh, well, I wouldn't like to put a number on it because there's a lot of genetic variation between mm, humans. Mm. We know that the humans vary and the environment varies a right, lot right. between people. But yeah, definitely there is stochastic variation right. between people that um, probably does have some impact on what you're like, how you come out, uh, what happens to you, whether you're more or li- less likely to get certain diseases. Uh, I mean, my next book is all about cancer and the evolution of cancer, the genetics and genomics of cancer. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, lots of your cells pick up all kinds of damage all the time. Mm-hmm. But virtually none of your cells will develop into a cancer cell. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there's a combination of DNA damage, environment, but also probably just, you know, randomness, random luck, random chance, stochasticity, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. that that influences that as well. Right. So that is is really, really interesting. And again, it's, it's what people are really trying to dig into now. It's very hard to do this kind of stuff to figure out how changes in the environment on whatever level impact on the genome and impact on the phenotype. But there are, there are some really interesting experiments looking at that. And actually, one thing mm-hmm. that will also you'll find very interesting mm-hmm. is that I, I talked about Ben's kind of super worms, right. 10% of worms that right. just survive. And uh, there are actually, you know, super humans and uh, other organisms that we know that they are carrying gene faults that should be bad, that should give them diseases. Uh, so these are, uh, they're sometimes called genetic superheroes. Mm-hmm. And there's been quite a few big experiments that have found, found this. People are walking around with genetic faults that should give them a disease, mm-hmm. but they are well. So we know that maybe they have genetic variations in their genome that are protecting them. Maybe they have... Um, variations in their environment. Maybe it's something they ate that's protecting them or something they're doing that's protecting them. Or maybe 
it's just you know the random wobble in their in their other genes is protecting them as well mm -hmm. so now that we're starting to look at lots and lots and lots of people and saying okay well you look healthy what's actually in your genome and like wow there's some weird stuff in there but you seem to be completely well right that i think is raising some very interesting questions because previously we only looked at people who were sick you know you look at someone someone who's got say an inherited disease mm -hmm. uh, and you go okay what is the gene fault that must be contributing to your disease mm -hmm. da, 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 follow it through your right. family whatever but now we can look at hundreds thousands thousands of people who are on the surface perfectly well, healthy, you know, as, as variable as any of the rest of us are in terms of our health and happiness, mm -hmm. and finding that there are all sorts of strange things going on mm. inside regular human genomes. Right. So that's, I, I think, another really interesting area. Right, and talking about genetic superheroes, the the process of a mutation, whenever it does happen, if it does happen, and we have a lot of it in, in our movies now and just looking at all the superhero movies, what is the likelihood of something like this happening in future or something like this really happening to maybe an individual or some uh, a person where some random mutation actually gives you superpowers? Well, to a certain extent, we know that um, many of the traits that we see in different populations they have come from one original founder because it's the mm -hmm. same mutation, the same change. Right. Like, I don't really like the word mutation. I like to think of sort of variations and changes. Right. But for example, uh, blue eyes mm -hmm. is down to one particular genetic change. Mm -hmm. Everyone who has blue eyes has that same change. Mm -hmm. So we know that that must have been one founder, mm -hmm. one individual, somewhere way back in human evolutionary history. And then the important thing is, it's not just enough to have the change, it must be passed on, it must be selected. So either that change has to have an advantage, mm -hmm. or it has to make you more attractive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because right. that's really kind of how it works. Right. Either it has to improve your survival mm -hmm. in some way, or make you, for example, bigger, stronger, more able to survive mm -hmm. in your particular environment. Right. And, or make you more attractive to the opposite sex so they want to breed with you right. and pass that on because you could, you know, maybe you have some incredible genetic superpower in your genome, mm -hmm. but if you don't have children mm -hmm. and it doesn't get passed on, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's going to vanish with you, right. I'm afraid. Right. Um, same thing with me. I don't have kids. I could have the most incredible variations in my genome, but they're not going anywhere mm -hmm. uh, because... I don't have children. Right, right. So all of these things, it's not just about change, mutation. It is about selection and advantage and it being passed on. Right. And there's a lot of kind of random variations between all of us that just drift around. You know, some people have them, some people don't. It doesn't really make a difference. Uh, different populations have different ones. Sometimes it makes a difference, for example, how you respond to a particular medicine. So mm -hmm. you do need to, to know that and understand that. Right. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thought. What are the next, what is the next big genetic variation? Yeah, that would be very interesting. And, yeah, but also that, that's where the environment comes into play. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily from the epigenetic point of view, but from the selective pressure point of view. Mm -hmm. Because uh, a particular genetic variation, it, if it provides an advantage, it provides an advantage in a certain environment. Mm -hmm. So say, uh, as the planet is changing, as the planet is getting much, 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 much hotter, 
we may see human variation very, very slowly mm-hmm. uh, over thousands of years, hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be around to see it. Yeah. But we might start seeing variants emerging in the human genome that make people better equipped to deal with very high temperatures. Yes, I'm sure that's happening. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see. And I think just, you know, more genomes, let's see what's going on. Let's see how these patterns of variation are changing. We already know, for example, um, people who live up in, in very high places, I think it's in, in places like Tibet, have a particular genetic variation that means that they are better equipped to survive at very high altitudes. Right. Some people down at low altitudes, you know, if you live by the sea, you might have that variation. There's no advantage to you, so there's no pressure to keep it in mm-hmm. the genome. Mm-hmm. So it will drift in and out of the population. Maybe it will arise, maybe it will be passed on a bit, maybe it will be lost. But in that high-altitude environment, that is a big advantage. Right. Because you're going to be healthier, you're going to be fitter, you're going to be more able to uh, to find a mate and reproduce, because right. that's how biology works. Right. So it's a, it's a real advantage in that environment as well. Right. And we commonly hear the phrase where people uh, mention it's in your genes, but genes don't really make, uh, you know, either a hand or a leg, but they would move more towards making the the protein that then makes, this, I mean, that then goes into forming some kind of, part of your tissue and then the organ. So it doesn't generally, I mean, when we talk about you have a gene for, let's say, patients or you have a gene for, for, for anger or you have a gene for height. And is, is that true or am I, have I got it wrong? Yeah. So this is, this is a big misconception in genetics is this language of a gene for, you know, right. there, there are genes for genes that make you fat, genes that make you intelligent, Correct. genes that that do this and do that. So that there is no such thing as a gene Absolutely. for. Yeah. And that that's really important. If people take nothing else away mm-hmm. from this podcast, I, I really, you know, that's that's a really important insight that you have there. Right. And I think uh, this language of a gene for mm-hmm. has been very misleading because there is no gene for toes Absolutely. or for a heart. Yeah, the sonic hedgehog gene is not the toe gene. It's a gene that makes a protein that helps cells make decisions mm-hmm. about what you're going to be. Um, even, you know, things like the, the genes that affect the colour of our, our skin, our eyes, our hair. These are just genes that make uh, pigment or pigment cell receptors. And they sometimes have other functions as well. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the genes that's involved in, in skin colour and hair colour is also involved in making stem cells. Uh, it plays a really important role in, in blood stem cells. So these are genes that help our cells make decisions. Right. And where it gets a lot more complicated and, and controversial is where people start talking about traits, and particularly things like intelligence or, or characteristics, uh, personality traits. And that's where I think that the evidence can get very confusing and it can get very very twisted mm. because you know yes your your genes help to, to build the structures of your body your environment helps to shape those and with something like the brain the brain has evolved to be incredibly plastic to change to learn to adapt that's why humans are so successful because our brains are so incredibly adaptive we can adapt to all sorts of situations we can learn we can we can reflect we can think we can reason and, you know, are some of those things encoded in our genes? 
possibly, mm. but it's more that the genes encode the proteins that build that meat computer. Right. You know, it's more like they, they put together the... I'm looking at my laptop here. They, they put together the hardware of the laptop. Mm. But mm. there are all sorts of things that you can install, that you can run in it. There's things that, you know, that viruses, if you like, computer viruses that get in and mess things up, illnesses that get, get in and mess things up. Um, if I was to, to pour a pint of beer into my laptop, it would not work very well. Mm. Uh, you know, that's nothing to do with the laptop itself. That's to do with something that I've done to the laptop. Right. So I think this, this interplay between... Um, between genes, environment, and the wobble, right. I think it becomes even more important when we consider personality traits, characteristics. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if, if someone grows up in an environment where there are just no books, where there is no written word at all, mm-hmm. and you say, well, you can't read. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's not because there's, they're missing the reading gene. Mm-hmm. They've just never been put in front right. of a book. The right. human brain is adapted to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, there may be sort of at some level there will be like a, a limit to what each individual's like brain can achieve, but the human brain is so incredible that that spectrum is incredibly wide of what indip- individuals can and can't do or feel or think or sense, depending on all the inputs that have come into them from their genes, from the wobble, from their environment, right from the very minute that egg and sperm came together mm. all through their life right. so uh, I, I think it's very hard to start talking about oh yeah genes for intelligence or depression or mm. all these kind of things and and you know with uh, currently uh, genetic testing or companies like uh, 23andMe uh, people actually are I, I would think or I'm not sure because you're looking for I mean what exactly are we looking for there and what is the actual process of these genetic tests and what do they tell you? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. So 23andMe and a lot of the genetic testing companies, what they are looking at is very specific snapshots across the genome. They're in many cases just looking at one single letter in a gene and, and saying, what, what letter do you have here? Say, for, for just to take a completely random example, say there's a a gene that's involved in breaking down a particular drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you have a T in a particular place in that gene, and I have a, a C in that particular place in that gene, and that means that you are less likely to be good at breaking down that drug, so perhaps you need a higher dose or a lower dose of that drug. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of these kind of specific letters that we know are linked to how you metabolize drugs, uh, to the risk of getting certain diseases, not necessarily that you will, and that's very important, but just the risk. Mm-hmm. And they don't look at everything. They don't look at the whole genome. They don't even look at whole genes. Mm-hmm. So, for example, for the breast cancer genes, um, these genes BRCA1 and BRCA2, that if you have certain variations, they can greatly increase your risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. They're just looking at the kind of the, the top changes that they know are most likely to be most common in, in families, particularly in Ashkenazi Jewish families, mm-hmm. uh, they're not looking at the whole gene. So if you have one of these tests and it says, yes, you have this particular change, that does not mean that, yes, you're definitely going to get that type of cancer. Mm-hmm. And also, if you don't have one of those changes, it also doesn't mean that you actually don't have a change in that gene. Mm. just they haven't looked in that place. So I think people can be very confused, can be very worried, 
um, about what this means because it's a lot about risk. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, there's a lot that we don't understand about how that, that sequence in your DNA is translated into how you actually come out. Mm -hmm. And the discovery that there can be people walking around with you know, what look like quite serious genetic faults mm. and still be well mm -hmm. starts to make this a lot more confusing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the, the characteristics, you know, uh, you can do a 23andMe test and it will say, for me, I haven't had mine done, but I'm sure that it will say that I have brown hair and white skin mm -hmm. and that I have some kind of greenish, brownish eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, and for you, it, w it would say something different. It would say mm. that you have brown skin and brown mm. hair and brown mm. eyes. Mm. So these tests, to some extent, they tell us what we can see in the mirror. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to our risk of disease, mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's interesting, but it's right now, it's not gospel. Okay. Now, there are companies that are trying to do whole genome sequencing to look at everything in the genome. Mm -hmm. Again, mostly just focusing on certain genes that we know are particularly linked to particular diseases mm -hmm. but um yeah that's that's still quite early and there's still a lot we don't understand about that connection between genes and diseases right now one of the other things that people like to do ancestry? Is, uh, is the kind of the ancestry yes yeah. exactly yeah people people love that yeah i uh, think uh, I, I, and i was always wondering whether most people doing it are they going for the ancestry, or they're going for the medical, uh, or they wanted to find out about the, the the medical health. So, what do you, what is actually happening? I think uh, I think it really depends on the people. Um, some people do want to know about their their medical health. Some mm. people are just more interested in the you know the recreational genetic side of things. Mm. Um, you know, my my mother is very very interested in family history, so she's right. she's intrigued to do it because she wants to see if she can find missing cousins and 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 sort of all this kind of thing. Mm. What's a little bit tricky is that when you start to get into deep ancestry and people tell all sorts of stories, there are companies that promise to tell you, oh, you know, are you part Viking, mm -hmm. exactly where in Africa, you know, if you're, if, yeah. you're, uh, uh, if you're black, exactly where in Africa, which village did right. your ancestors right. come from, right. what part of India did you come from? Yeah. Uh, you can tell all these ridiculous stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know where you're family came from, you know where your grandparents came from, right. and, and so on and so on, uh, and so do I. But when it gets down to like, you know, hundreds, thousands of years in the past, mm. it's a lot more complicated because that data is only as good as the databases. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if, say, 23andMe have uh, 10 people with a particular genetic variation, mm -hmm. and they all sort of seem to cluster in one particular part of, say, Africa, mm. then as they get another 100 people or another 1,000 people with that same particular genetic variation, and you say, oh, actually, it looks like those 10 people were a bit overrepresented in that area. Mm. And in fact, most people with this genetic variation are in uh, the other side of the country. Right. So that kind of statistics and that database can get very confusing. And as more and more uh, data comes in, as more and more people are having their, their genomes analysed in, in this kind of way, mm. that data is, is starting to shake down some, some very interesting stories. Right. And uh, I think exactly relying on it to say, yes, I want to pinpoint where my ancestors right. came from is, is kind of nonsense. Because right. if you go back far enough, we all come from the same people. Yep. Uh, yeah. Most Europeans, yeah. kind of, we all share at least 
some common ancestors right. not that far back. Right. Uh, and if you go far back enough, you know, we're all going back to, to Africa. Mm. So I think it is interesting. And, and you can, but, but actually, what I will say is where it becomes really important to actually understand genetic diversity across the globe mm. is for health and for healthcare. Right. So one of the companies that I work with is called Global Gene Corps, and they're particularly working in India, actually. Okay. They're working to gather genetic information that captures Indian diversity mm-hmm. because a lot of the drugs that are now being developed are, uh, and the tests, the diagnostic tests for different diseases mm-hmm. or for whether you should have this drug or that drug, they're all based on databases that are like 80 90% white European ancestry. Right. And so those databases, they will have genetic variations that are specific to white European populations. Right. So if you say, okay, well, what does that variation mean in an Indian population? Mm -hmm. It pretty much might mean nothing. And and acting on that information for a diagnostic test or for a drug could potentially be very harmful Mm. or it just might not work. Mm. So we actually really need to understand diversity in the genome, not so that you can say, well, you're from there, you're from there, you're like this, you're like that, in any kind of sort of, mm. it's, it's interesting to see where populations have come from, right. but actually knowing what your genome is like impacts your health mm. and the treatments that you might need. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think this kind of uh, understanding the diversity and the ancestry and, and population genetics I think that's where that stuff becomes really important. Where it becomes bad is where people start wanting to, like, shove people in boxes and Mm. say that genetics equates to race and and that people Mm. who are like this are like this. Mm. Like, no, they're not. Mm. Uh, But you do need to understand your genetic variants to understand your health. Exactly. So that that's an important point. Right, and I think that would that would probably be in line with what uh, or, or would move towards what uh, CRISPR is doing now as well, because if you had to get into any kind of medical or what I think it's called genetic uh, mirroring or genetic uh, copying for for health benefit, then you would have to understand this variation, right? Yeah, so so that is very interesting. The CRISPR is uh, one of these technologies. It's called gene editing, mm-hmm. and it means that scientists can now very precisely snip out and change parts of DNA, replace them, fix them, all sorts of things. And it's starting to become uh, a reality for for gene therapy for cell therapies. Cell therapy, yeah. Yeah. So this is like the idea, for example. Um, one of the interesting ones is say if you have a problem, a genetic problem, that means that you don't make a certain enzyme in your liver. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't break down your food properly, you can become very sick. You could take some liver cells from that person, you could fix them using CRISPR to, to replace that faulty gene, replace it with a functional gene, grow those liver cells in a dish, transplant them back into the person. And then that part of their liver would start acting as a little factory, mm-hmm. making that protein and making them healthy again. Mm. So that's kind of a very interesting thing. The same thing with blood cells, thinking about fixing, uh, fixing faulty genes that give people things like sickle cell anemia or other blood disorders that can be really, really severe. Right. So, but again, in order to do that, you need to understand exactly what you're targeting because all of Correct. this is based on the exact sequence of the DNA. Absolutely. So you do need to have that diversity to understand really the 
the global genome, not just mm-hmm. the, the standard reference human genome mm-hmm. that's come from <laughs> basically like yeah. six white people. Right. Uh, you need to really understand what uh, are their commonalities in Indian genomes, even across regions in India, mm-hmm. uh, across regions in Africa, across regions in Europe, uh, across regions in the Americas. What are the variations in our genomes that affect health mm-hmm. and may be important as you start getting into a, a, a new genetic era? Right. And and what are your thoughts on the future now moving forward where we hear stories about genetic modification where I think in China and China is quite uh, is taking this uh, quite forward when it comes down to future generations or populations of being able to modify uh, physical abilities or intellectual abilities and uh, it's it's getting into a race where uh, I think the US it has to decide whether it wants to keep up there are ethical decisions to this. Uh, how far how far are we going with this at the moment yeah so it it's funny a couple of years ago i was asked you know where do you think someone will do the first like you know genetically modified baby mm-hmm. and i was like it's going to be china it's mm-hmm. going to be china uh because they have a very different attitude to <laughs> mm-hmm. regulations right. um I think there's just a, a sort of a different cultural attitude as well mm-hmm. to this kind of science, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very interesting. So it wasn't a surprise when, at uh, the end of last year, the scientist Hei Jiang Ku announced that he had, there was a birth of these twins that had twins, a right. particular, yeah, particular genetic modification that had been done by CRISPR yeah. uh, that meant that they couldn't pick up, I think, was it HIV, I think? It was, They, they yes. couldn't contract that, that virus. You're right, it was. They were immune so to that. Yeah, so I think that that really was a, a watershed because, uh, well, for, for people who know the field, it were like, yeah, it was only a matter of when, not if, someone was going to do this, mm. probably it was going to be someone in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that was, that was an interesting wake-up call. I think that there does need to be a conversation about if we can have these tools, mm-hmm. And all the research that's been going into developing them and the potential impact for human health, we need to have really big conversations on uh, not just individual country levels, but on a global level about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Mm. And this comes all the way back to what we were saying at the beginning of that that sort of black box between your genotype and your phenotype. Now, there are a few diseases that we know of that uh, where it's like very specific gene faults or gene variations lead to a specific disease. Mm-hmm. They're, they're called Mendelian disorders. And it's like pretty much if you've got this fault, you are going to have this disease. Although, as mm-hmm. I said, now yeah. we're discovering these genetic superheroes. It's mm-hmm. all a bit like, oh, uh, maybe, uh, but probably. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are some of those diseases which are uh, very severe or fatal that Yes, there is possibly an argument there that for, for CRISPR, um, certainly an argument for using it in, in not in, in eggs and sperm or in embryos, but mm. certainly in body tissues. Right. I think that's, that's very, uh, that should move forward. Right. And there's all, all sorts of inter- interesting technology there. But yeah, I think that when you start to think about, well, could you engineer traits, right. uh, intelligence, for example, mm-hmm. height, weight, all sorts of things, mm. Those are controlled by so many genes and so many switches and the influence of the environment and the wobble that I think you can't just say, okay, we'll, we'll tweak this, tweak this, tweak this, tweak this, and that will guarantee that your child will be intelligent. Mm-hmm. Like, 
that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And also, the more you start fiddling, Mm -hmm. the more you're likely to break something as well. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there was a story I saw recently about some cows that had been genetically modified so that they didn't grow horns. Mm -hmm. Because, obviously, like, horns on cows, they fight and it's all, you know, it's not a good idea. Right. Uh, so they'd actually been bred without horns. And they started looking at the whole genome of these cows and discovered that during that process, they'd accidentally introduced an antibiotic resistance gene into the cows. And you're like, oh, well, mm-hmm. that's really bad. And suddenly it's like, no, these, the, you can't, these cows cannot, cannot go forward, really. Right, right. You have to be really sure that you're avoiding what we call off-target events, that you're really changing what you think you're changing mm-hmm. when it comes to the Mendelian diseases, these kind of one-gene, one-disease one mm-hmm. uh, conditions. But you also have to be, like, you really have to know what that gene variant is doing. Right. And also but maybe that it's, like, that you're not accidentally changing something else, you're not altering the balance of something else further down the road. I think the idea that you could tweak even a hundred or a thousand genes and you would guarantee intelligence mm. I, I think really is 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 nonsense i think that there you know there could be hundreds thousands of babies that have been born mm. with the same mind as you know rosalind franklin or mm. einstein or mozart or you know uh, anyone that you, you want right. to care to think of right but they didn't have access to the particular environmental conditions, the upbringing, the training, the tutoring, you know, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff right. that, that makes a difference. Uh, so, yeah, right. I'm, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not sure I'm not sure about designer babies. Right. Basically. So, it, because it, it, it's strange that when you talk about performance enhancement drugs at the moment and you look at international sporting events where people are being caught out for, you know, either uh, drug use to enhance their performance, how does this get monitored in the future where somebody is a designer baby who's running faster uh, than a normal baby? And it really it really makes for some very interesting conversation. Yeah, I wrote a feature about this, actually, uh, and talked to, talk to a lot of people about this. And mm-hmm. I actually talked to someone at the, um, the, the Olympic, whatever, the Olympic governing sporting body is. Right. And... Uh, and it is interesting because if it was undetectable, mm. you wouldn't necessarily know. But you wouldn't. At the moment, there's not that many variations that we know that are linked to certain physical characteristics. I did. I think I actually saw a story that China was going to start genetically testing its athletes for these variations that we do know about. Yes. But again, it's like just because your genes say that you're more likely to be a more powerful sprinter compared to a distance runner, it well, that makes no difference if actually what you really love and are prepared to massively dedicate yourself to is yes, but, swimming but, when your genes say you yeah, should be a runner or but, whatever like that. Uh, but Kat, through Ovid uh, CRISPR, could this be actually done if you could identify what makes you a better swimmer, uh, let's say? Again, uh, I, th- I think there's so many no? things that make someone a good swimmer that are not just the limited repertoire of genes that we know about for for physical traits. Right, right. So to be a really great sports person, you need grit, you need determination, you right. need focus, but you need access to the right upbringing. Right. So but yes, technically, so there, actually there, is, there are a couple of things. So for example, um, there's a gene called EPO, which mm-hmm. affects how you use oxygen. Right. And you can, there are variations that are more efficient at getting oxygen into your blood. Mm. So yes, technically, you could 
make that change. Mm. Uh, there was a very famous cross-country downhill skier, a skier, who had a, a variation in that gene, and it meant that he was, like, his blood was basically super oxygenated. Right. He won loads of medals, really great guy. Mm. Other people in his family who had the same genetic change, they all basically died of, like, blood problems. Mm. So, <laughs> again, it's like, right. if you're going to start fiddling with these genes, altering genetic characteristics, Mm-mm. you have to be really sure of, of what you're doing because there's no guarantee that if you tweak this, tweak that, do this, that you will get exactly that output right. out the other end. Right. So, yes, technically, uh, there are you, you could, for example, modify someone's blood. You might be able to modify muscle, although how would you modify all the muscles in someone's body? Mm-hmm. You start to get into then design a baby territory. Would you engineer a baby to have different variants from the start? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the question of exactly when it comes to something like sporting performance or intelligence or artistic traits or anything like that, mm-hmm. exactly what makes a great sports person or a great artist or a great musician or a, a great scientist, that is not just a selection of a certain number of genetic variants. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think, you know, we are in very, very interesting times, especially in the field that you are in, and I think uh, the future is going to be even more exciting. What do you see happening uh, moving forward? You know, what are the areas that you think is going to actually uh, take us in this direction, and how, how do you see this playing out? So there's a couple of things that I think are really interesting and really important. So one of them is this issue of gathering global genetic diversity, Mm -hmm. really understanding from lots and lots and lots of people, hundreds of thousands of people, potentially millions of people across the world, what does the human genome look like? What are the variations in it? And how does that impact on our lives, on our health, on what what we come out like? So that will start to unpack that that black box between the genotype and the phenotype. Sorry, and you'll also need... Sorry, sorry, but the Human Genome Project uh, 2002, did that not set out to achieve exactly that or was it, uh, or did it not achieve what it was supposed to? Well, it achieved what it was supposed to, which was to do a basic draft of the standard human genome, mm, which I think mm. came from about six volunteers, okay. most of whom, uh, I think all of whom, uh, I think all of whom were white, Mm-hmm. Uh, and a very limited number, you know, a very small group of people. Mm. So that was, even the human reference genome that we have mm. is, uh, you know, say you take someone from Africa or someone from India and you look at their genome mm. and compare it to the reference sequence, which has been derived from mostly white populations, mostly white databases. Mm. There are massive differences in there. Are some of them important? Are some of them relevant for health? We don't know because we don't mm. know what these variants look like and how they correlate to health. So there's there's an important thing that needs to be done of gathering genetic data, but then also gathering phenotype data, gathering data about health, what people do, how they live their lives, about the environment. So from people all over the world, right now, you know, we have 80%, 90% of our databases are just from white Europeans mostly middle-class white Europeans, the Mm. kind of people who get involved in genetic studies because Mm. it's important. Mm. Uh, We need that to be done all over the world. It's Mm. starting to happen, and I think that will help us to understand this connection between genotype and phenotype for everyone, not just for the limited population that have been studied so far. 
So I think that's very interesting. And then starting to use that data to really understand disease and then to develop cell therapies and gene therapies that can start to uh, tackle those diseases, developing precision medicines that are right for your genome that really uh, that actually get to the root of what's causing your disease or properly diagnose it. So, but we just need more data to do that from more people and more different people. Right. And you mentioned that you have a book coming out, uh, Kat, where you talk a little bit more on the uh, on on cancer and on the current state of of what the sickness is or how it can be detected. Uh, and moving forward, could you give us a little bit uh, about it to our listeners and how, how, would, how would they benefit if we go, we go through that? So my book will be coming out in June next year. Mm-hmm. Watch the space. Uh, at the moment, we don't have a title. I keep changing the title, so I can't tell you what it's going to be called. Right. Uh, but it will be coming out in June. And it's really looking at cancer from the perspective of life going all the way back to the the origins of life, the evolution of life on the planet. Cancer is not just a human disease. It's not just a modern disease. It's a disease that happens when cells go awry, when they ignore the rules of the body, the rules of the society around them, and they start misbehaving. They cheat. they, They disrupt. So it's viewing cancer as that kind of process of disruption, and a process of evolution. Cancers evolve in the body, they change, they adapt to the environment around them, to the cells around them. They adapt to treatments that are thrown at them. They become resistant. They become more and more difficult to treat. So it's really viewing it as this a deep-rooted evolutionary disease. And then that means that a lot of the ways that we're thinking of treating cancer, so just hitting it with targeted drugs and, and, and that's it, it's not really going to work and certainly not for advanced cancers that have got a lot of different cells and different variations in them Um, you'll only knock out a few of them and the ones that you leave will come back so it's we need to think of different strategies for for managing cancer for managing this evolutionary growth and so it's it's very 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 exciting i'm currently redrafting the second version of it right uh <laughs> thanks for bringing it up right. but uh it's it's a very exciting and a very different view of of what cancer is i think it's not something that's other it's not something that's modern it's something that is deeply and inextricably linked to to life right now i'm, I'm all the best with that and i'm sure there'll be uh, a lot of people who will want to read it when it comes out and and Kat, I also have a lot of uh, people who are listening to us now or a lot of uh, students who are listening to us now probably in university or starting off in, in high school and moving and where decisions have to be made about what interests them or what course of action they take if they're interested in a particular field. And if it comes down to genetics, what would your advice be to these to these young future genetic engineers? What should they be concentrating on? One is, you know, as far as their uh, academic uh, studies go or their academic courses, and what advice would you give them moving forward? Uh, Well, obviously, buy my book, Herding Hemingway's Cat, uh, and then buy my next book when it comes out next year. Sure. Uh, I definitely recommend that. One of the things is really getting your head around genomics, statistics, uh, genetics, and... uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the interface now between 
biology and AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I think we're seeing a lot of people who've come out of the, the AI field and a lot of people who've come out of the genetics field and they're trying to talk to each other and trying to collaborate because genetic data is huge data sets. It's enormous data sets. You have to have the algorithms to sift through that, to spot patterns that you just cannot see with a, with a human mind mm. and to uh, integrate all the different data about genetics, environment, disease, health, integrating all those different types of, of data together to see the answers. And so I think I would definitely recommend for students now to really be thinking about not only studying biology, genetics, but bringing in that machine learning, AI, coding, uh, that, kind of, that kind of brain that brings together both of those things, I think will be really useful for solving these problems in the future. Absolutely. And uh, we, uh, I know that, uh, you know, you are limited for time. I am not. But it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Kat. And I expected this conversation to be a little bit more difficult than it actually was for me. Because I think uh, most of what we wanted to know, uh, we, we've covered. And I think we've got a lot of details here as well. I just hope, Kat, you spent your time, uh, you've enjoyed spending time with us. And It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. This is my favorite thing. Genetics blows my mind. How do you, how do you make life? out of this DNA sequence. So I, I could just talk about it all day. I do have to get on with my work now. You have to get on with your day. But it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Kat. And from all of us here at Indian Genes, all the best with your new book and all the best with uh, your, your new interviews that you should be doing moving forward on your podcast as well. Thank you.